This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 311, The Troublesome Cost Time Bomb of Universal Life Insurance with Lester Himmel. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your host, certified financial planner Mark Willis, invites you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Join us on September 6th and 7th, 2023 for an incredible two-day Not Your Average Financial Summit event that will revolutionize the way you think about your money. Whether you are a seasoned investor or just starting out on this journey called money, this not-so-average financial summit has something for everyone. Gain some valuable knowledge, learn actionable tips, and connect with like-minded individuals who share your passion for bank on yourself and so much more. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity. Mark your calendars for September 6th and 7th, 2023 and register. Head over to our website, notyouraveragefinancialsummit.com. That's notyouraveragefinancialsummit.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode. Hope you're enjoying your summer as this episode drops or winter whenever you're listening to it. You know, I was thinking about it, and it seems like about every 10 or 20 years or so, another financial scheme is devised and heavily promoted and sold to the buying public. It's almost as common as going from winter to spring. It's just a regular cycle, it seems, in human history. It becomes this sort of financial contagion that spreads surprisingly fast and becomes a real systemic threat to either the industry it's emerging from or the world economy at large. Let's take, for example, tulip mania. That was an example of major financial speculation and frenzy in the 17th century in Holland over just selling mere tulip bulbs. Now, tulips were introduced into Europe from Turkey around 1550 AD, and they became a status symbol. Status symbol. Sound familiar? All the demand for the exotic varieties of tulips exceeded the supply, and prices began to soar. Now, everybody from all walks of life, from the CEOs to the janitors, They all invested all they could into the tulip trade, hoping to make a fortune by merely reselling bulbs at higher and higher prices. But the bubble, of course, burst in early 1637 as people began to really find rationality again, and prices of tulip bulbs just collapsed literally overnight, leaving many people bankrupt, sitting on a pile of worthless tulip bulbs. Now, at its peak, The Semper Augustus tulip bulb, which has white petals with crimson flames, in case you're curious, was on sale for about 4,000 guilders. That would be the equivalent of more than 750,000 US dollars in today's money. 750 grand, almost three quarters of a million dollars for one tulip bulb. Now that would take the average skilled worker in Holland about 27 years to save up if they put away 100% of their income for 27 years. So can you see why? This bulb mania is the quintessential bubble and bursting in a market economy. So why do people fall for financial bubbles like this? You know, promises sound great on a brochure, a slick. And it sounds so good that people somehow decide implicitly or explicitly to just overlook the downfalls, the risks, the considerations. 
There's also, I believe, a fear of missing out, FOMO, this great anxiety that you might experience regret if you don't invest in the tulip mania. And in addition, there's something called herd behavior. And it's this phenomenon where there's a positive feedback loop that just amplifies and reinforces the value of a certain investment or bubble that's beginning to form. Rather than letting logic and reason determine the real price of something, we disregard our own logic. Instead, we develop irrational exuberance and even overconfidence. And at that point, we fall into this trap uh, of something psychologists call anchoring. Anchoring influences how investors perceive the value of a particular tool or asset. So for example, if I showed you a $300 bottle of wine, and then I show you a $200 bottle of wine, you're going to immediately see that $200 bottle of wine as a better deal because of anchoring. However, if I had simply shown you a bunch of $200 bottles of wine all day long, you would look at all of them and say, well, they're all too expensive. So that's the concept of anchoring. And whether we're talking about tulip bulbs at $750,000 a piece or NFTs at several million dollars a piece for a picture on a computer screen, that's anchoring. And lastly, the psychological trick of confirmation bias, I believe, plays a part in what creates these mania bubbles. Psychological trick of confirmation bias, which essentially helps to seek and filter out and remember information that only confirms our existing beliefs, all the while ignoring or dismissing information that contradicts our core belief. In other words, we filter out what we don't want to hear. We might selectively pay attention to news that, say, supports a bullish outlook on stocks if we believe the market's going to go up. And we might disregard contrary evidence if any bad news should appear. So what's all this have to do with my incredible guest today? Well, my guest today has been on our show twice before, and each time it's been a rock star experience for me. Absolutely. He's a great guy and very intelligent man. He's dug deep into the trenches of Wall Street the bond markets, insurance markets. He understands the trouble with human behavior and market volatility. So in today's episode, we're going to explore what I think is a recent scheme, which once again promises people upside potential without any downside risk. Does that sound a little too good to be true? Yeah, maybe. Well, that's the promise anyway. But with more and more lawsuits coming online each year, there's more and more reason to view this popular product as a story that has more than meets the eye. Yes, I'm talking about indexed universal life insurance. And my guest today is Lester Himmel. Now, Lester Himmel discovered the use of specific types of whole life insurance to enhance and expand the performance of investment portfolios several years ago. And this after spending 28 years in a variety of positions on Wall Street. Like most financial professionals, he considered stocks, bonds, and similar instruments as the core of a reasonable investment approach. But in those last several years, Les has found, I think, a better way. Les comes from this field with a very, very broad financial background. He started as a compliance officer. He worked in administration. He was an institutional bond trader. He developed an emerging markets business and was also involved with alternative investments. Les prefers low risk and guarantees and has an ability to simplify explanations of what, why, and how the financial universe works. Now, you'll get to know Les a little bit better in today's episode, 
And hang tight to the end as I'm going to wrap things up today and get you ready for part two, which is coming up next week. But with all that out of the way, let's bring back on Lester Himmel. Les, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Mark. It's great to be here. Les, you are one of my favorite guests to bring on. You have a perspective, I think, on the overall financial industry that more people need to know about. And for folks that want to hear some of Les's uh, perspective, go back and listen to his two two-parter episodes that we've got so far. But your perspective is so um, refreshingly clean of, I think, the, the, the dross that comes with ordinary financial planning. And in particular, uh, I'd just like for you, before we get into today's content, to just share a bit about your perspective on volatility and average rates of return. So what is average returns and what does volatility have to do with folks getting to where they're trying to go, financially speaking? Well, let's start with a little uh, arithmetic and I'll, I'll suggest um, some homework, but the arithmetic is simple. Let's say you have some money to invest. You go to a broker, what we call a broker 20 years ago. Now we call them investment advisors. Uh, you go to your advisor and suggest you have $10,000 to invest and you ask what you should invest in. And he makes a few suggestions, he or she, and you decide to put the money to work. And then after a year, you go back to your advisor and say, so how did I do? And the advisor says, well, you're up 100%. And you're thinking, wow, this guy, I, what a great, what a choice. Fantastic. You leave. And then a year later, you come back and ask the same question. How did I do? And he says, you're down 50%. And your thought is, well, I was up 100 last year. I'm down 50 this year. That's still pretty good. I, at least I didn't lose money. The arithmetic that goes into determining what your average return was, back to fifth grade or sixth grade arithmetic, up 100 in year one, down 50 in year two, leaves a net of 50. For an average, or for um, an average, you take the 50 divided by two for two years and you get a 25% average return. Sounds pretty good. I'll take a 25% average rate of return. Absolutely. So let's go to a, a second example before I give you the punchline. You have your money invested. After one year, it goes up 60%, six zero. Second year, again, you ask how you've done. It goes down 50%. You're thinking, okay, up 60, down 50, net of 10. At least I didn't lose money. And the average return was the 10 divided by two for two years, a 5% average return. Now let's go with the punchline. In the first example, you take your money, it goes up 100%. Let's use $100 in the example, 100 real dollars. So you're $100 up 100%, you have $200. You're down 50% in year two, so $200 down 50% is $100. 100. Yeah. Where's the 25% wow. average return? In the second example, $100 up 60%, you have 160. 160 down 50%, you have 80. Where's the 5% average return? So in that second example, you gave us a 5% average rate of return, but we actually lost money, even though we had a positive rate of return. Exactly. Now, let's go into exactly why this is happening. It's as simple as this. Words have meanings. And what the world seems to use and understand as return is not a return, at least after the first year. It is a change. It is a percentage change. So when I say my investments are up 10%, what I'm saying is they've changed, they're up 10%. Simple. 
If I then say the return was 10%, well, was it? Now we get into a little bit more analytics, but let's not go crazy today. But the idea of change, if I look at multi-year scenario, year one, it goes up 10%, year two, it goes up 5%, year three, it goes down 15 What I really need to pivot on is what are called pivot points. Now, what I mean is I take $100, it goes up 100%, I have $200. From there, what's the change? Mm. And that's the key. I have to have an actual number, $200 in this example. And if I say I'm down 50%, it's 50% from that $200 platform. When people take average returns, all they're doing is putting together a string of percentages, up 10%, down 5%, up 3%, up 17%. They take the sum, they divide, but it's not the same thing. So that, when we now walk into volatility, all volatility is, is an indication or the reality of what those changes have done. That is, the more volatile your series of numbers, returns, changes, whatever you use, the more volatile, the less meaningful that average is. It's a little crazy, yeah. isn't oh, it? Oh, that's great. Well said. Yeah, the more volatile your asset is, the less meaningful your average is. That's actually a great way to sort of remind ourselves that averages mean nothing on your 401k statement, for example. If you liked what Les just dropped, the value bombs he was just dropping there, you'll love his blog. So go to 82financial.com. But you wrote a recent blog post called Why I Will Not Sell Universal Life Insurance. And I really want to push on this some because, you know, there is there's a, another whole type of cash value insurance out there called universal life insurance. With indexed universal life policies, the idea anyway is that we can participate on the up years of an index. We get credited, our cash value gets credited some money on the good years of the index, like the S&P 500 was up this year so far, but it was down last year in 2022. So the sales pitch for Universal Life is that we won't participate in the negative years when the market is down, when the index is down. Doesn't that solve the problems that you just laid out with typical investing? Having no more negative years sounds pretty good to me. Les, why do you not want to sell universal life insurance? Because what you've just laid out is half the story. The story is this. When universal life was created, and it wasn't that long ago, 1978 is not that long ago. It was created with the idea of creating a tax avoidance vehicle for the wealthy on Wall Street. That's a Simple. big deal. Looking at a product's original design and what something originally was designed for matters. Les, say that again. I'm sorry to interrupt you. And then take us further down that road. It was designed to be a tax avoidance vehicle for the wealthy. There were limited partnerships becoming in vogue back in the late 1970s. And the idea was simply, if you put money into a given vehicle, if you have tax benefits while you own that vehicle, you're avoiding taxes. And that was before Ronald Reagan came into office and decided to change the tax code and decrease tax rates, marginal rates for populace. The idea of putting money into that vehicle at that time, it's the same today. Here, I can put money in, my money grows tax deferred or tax free. How cool is this? But the problem is that the basic design of the policy was then and still is 
as far as what's called the chassis goes. That is, what really gives you the death benefit? And what gave you then, what still gives you today, that death benefit is a series of one-year term insurance policies strung together. Let me say that again. One-year policies, not the one you buy from um, MetLife or whomever, whatever. It's not the 10-year policy, the 20-year policy, the 30-year policy where you pay $14 a month. It is a one-year policy. And you know that as you age, if you go to apply for a life insurance policy at the age of 30, let's call it $100 a month, at the age of 31, it'll be $104 a month. Every year that you get older, that policy becomes more expensive as you apply for it. Well, one-year term policies inside that policy or that universal life policy is ever-growing in cost. That is, every year becomes more expensive inside whatever you're paying for the overall policy. That's a little confusing. If I have a $1,000 premium in a given year for that policy, some portion of that policy goes to the insurance company to pay the death claim if I were to die that year. Some portion, the remaining portion, goes to either administrative or cash balance figures. That is, now I'm putting money away for my investment. But every year, that cost of insurance, that one-year term policy, becomes more expensive. So more and more of your $1,000 goes toward the cost of insurance, and less and less of your $1,000 goes toward cash buildup. Well, when the policy was created, there was what was called a crediting rate. That was back in 1978. The company would give you, as banks do with a savings account, an interest rate on your money. So if you had money in there, they were awarding 5% or 6% or 4%, whatever the going rate was at the time when you bought the policy. And you were pleased that the cash in the policy was growing. And the issuer, the insurance company, was pleased that you bought the policy. Now, let's look at the cost of insurance as the key to this. At some point in the example $1,000 premium, at some point, your cost of insurance is more than $1,000. Well, what happens then? Hmm. Insurance company reserves the right to grab some of the cash buildup in your policy to cover costs. So now we're starting to overlap with, you just laid out the IULs and the way the money grows and you can't lose because of what's called the floor and so on. But if the insurance company says, hey, your $1,000 doesn't cover the cost of insurance, we need another $113. They're just going to grab it from your cash buildup, assuming the cash buildup is large enough to do that. If it comes to pass, and it will at some point in the future, that the amount of cash in the policy is not large enough to cover what has grown to be an enormous cost of insurance, you lose. Whatever cash is available, company grabs. Whatever is not available, they still need. That's when you get a letter that says, hey, we need more money. Here's what we need. Wow. Yeah, and I've seen those letters. In fact, family members have received those letters saying, hey, we're out of cash here. You need to pony up five times, 10 times as much premium as you are accustomed to paying. It can be a very devastating thing for someone who, in, in my family member's case, was in his mid-70s when he got that letter and certainly not able to 5X his premiums every month. Uh, so, you know, you brought up the the there is a advantage to the IUL, which is no loss when the market tanks. And you get to go up, so to speak, when the index is positive. You get to go up with the market's upside, but not participate in the downside. And you said that's half the story. 
And I want to throw this analogy in your in your box here and see less if you like it or if you amend it. Let's pretend that you, as a young adult, you enter into a renter's agreement with a landlord that you would absolutely be his tenant for the rest of your life. You cannot get out of this arrangement. You must rent his apartment forever, for life. And you get a great deal because of that early on. But in the contract, the landlord stipulates that he will and can raise the cost of renting his apartment every single year for the rest of your life. But don't worry, you can set aside all the money you were gonna be charged anyway over in this savings account that he also has access to. Okay, so in the moment of, of signing, you're happy to get this low rate and these pretty looking uh, returns that the savings account might give you in the good years. But as time goes on, the rate on the rent keeps going up, keeps going up, keeps going up. And over time, this landlord starts to take from the savings account that you both have joint access to. And even though the market might do well in that savings account, which is maybe somehow linked to the savings account, in the bad years, especially, you notice that your savings is dwindling until you get to that point where you no longer have a job, but you still have a rent payment. And that rent has you know, quadrupled, 10 x in size. And now what? Now how are we going to come up with that cash? The savings account has been depleted. And now we have nothing left except to be evicted. Is that kind of the overall you know, metaphor? Would you amend that? It's a good analogy, but I don't think it goes far enough. Let's imagine that while you're going through that scenario, that a hurricane comes along and blows the roof off the house, takes out the entire house, and you're responsible for replacing that house. How does wow. that come to pass? What, what The idea of the life insurance is that, yes, the cost goes up every year, plays with the analogy, but at some point, you will die. Mm. Yeah. And the insurance company is not unlike whole life insurance, unlike other vehicles. With universal life insurance, every year is a separate and distinct year for the insurance company's purpose. So when they look at that one-year term insurance, they're placing a bet for that one year on whether or not you're going to be dying during that year. Now, when you're 25 years old, it's a pretty safe bet for the insurance company, which is why the policy's cheap. When you're 55 years old, it's not quite as good as when you were 25, but the likelihood is still not such a big deal. When you're 85, now we're getting into some tough times. What's the likelihood of your dying at the age of 85? I don't know, but statistically, it's a whole lot more probable than when you were 30. And when you're 95, now we're getting into some real tough territory. So the idea of the insurance company saying, well, we'll place a bet on your surviving another 365 days. Here's what it will cost you. Mm -hmm. And now we're, I mean, imagine you're, you're 113 years old and the insurance company is persuaded to place a bet on your life at age 113. What's it going to cost you for a $1 million life insurance policy? $997,412.13. There's not a lot of room for wiggle there. Mm -hmm. So that's what UL, IUL, and VUL all do. They have that one-year bet year after year after year. And the half story that we're, we're hovering on, the idea of you're building up enough cash in the policy to offset these continual increasing costs, it's not just one cost that you have to cover. It's a cost year after year. Mm -hmm. So the cost at age 85 
followed by a higher cost at age 86, followed by a higher cost at age 87, and so on. Therefore, it's almost impossible to imagine that you're going to make enough money in the policy's positive side where you're playing with Wall Street, with whatever, with the S&P or whatever your index is. That gets to be a very difficult uh, image to imagine that you're going to cover all those costs year after year. But the idea further is complicated by now volatility. Because when you have that positive side in your growth and the cash doing whatever you want it to do, all you need is a few zero years. In other words, the market went down and you didn't participate on the upside. You just hovered on your floor. Well, that being the case, the results are impacting your growth. And worse, if you have a cap on that, and they all have caps, and the cap is lower than you originally signed on for. And what is a cap just for our audience? I'm sorry to interrupt. Sorry, a cap, we're talking about participation. So when you have an IUL and your floor is like zero, that means you can't go below, you can't take a loss. You're going to be floored or, or protected. Your cash will not go below wherever it was the previous year. The next year, if we have an upswing and the market goes up, let's say 18%, and your cap is limiting to what degree you can participate in the upside. So maybe the cap is 12%. If you have a 12% cap and the market's up 18% or the index is up 18%, you've only gone up 12% because that's your cap. That's the most of the, uh, the company will give you. You and, don't participate. And I don't know. Twelve percent is. Um, I don't know when folks will be listening to this, but is twelve percent uh, a cap that's reasonable to expect in this day and age? I, what I've seen most of the time, I can't speak for every company by any means, but it, it, I've seen commonly ten to ten and a half percent, and I think that's generous, frankly, based on what's going on. It's not as generous as participating one hundred percent in what the index does. So, so the the marketing pitch part of your blog was. You know, the language is cannot lose money in the markets. You will, you're guaranteed never to lose money due to a market correction. You know, this might be part of the marketing slick or the brochures that you hear. And sometimes people hear those words, can't lose money in the markets, or you're protected from market downturns. And they hear the words, I will never lose money in this. Uh, would you amend that? Would you help correct that misunderstanding? Well, the simple statement should be, you will never lose money in the market, but you will lose money to the insurance company. It's very straightforward. Once you know to ask the salesperson or agent, can I lose money in any way? Is there a chance that the insurance company will charge me more than I have on hand? Is there a chance that the insurance company is not going to stay static in what they charge me for the death benefit? Mm, that's big. So we've been talking in this episode about the cost of insurance and the I'd say the misunderstanding that I think the general public has about the safety of index universal life. And again, I've, I've shared in other episodes, my own um, family members' stories of how they've lost uh, life insurance, IUL, almost lost it. We ended up transferring it, thankfully, to a, a, a 1035 exchange, which is a tax-free transfer to a whole life contract, which worked out really well for him. Uh, but I want to end this particular episode with one other statistic, and, and really it was a quote that you brought up from an article. It was a study done by Gottlieb and Smetters in 2016 called Lapse-Based Insurance. And if you have that quote handy, I'd love 
to just read this, and then I want to get your feedback on it. It says, in the world of universal life, volatility plus ever-increasing cost of insurance is deadly. The lapse rate of ULs, that's you know variable universal life and index universal life in particular, is, as according to this study by Gottlieb and Smetters, as high as 88% of policies issued never ending in a death claim, which means, what does that mean in, in plain English? Well, what it means is that the policy is either stopped because the client stops paying premiums or lapsed because the client couldn't pay premiums or in some other way, the policy disappears from the horizon. It is no longer in force. That's so the nine, idea nine in 10 uh, IULs and ULs are not paying out death benefits. They're either uh, yeah, going away in some other way. Let's be clear on who these people are. One of them was at UPenn. One of them was at Washington University. They work together. The, the study has been revised, I think, three times since this initial uh, issuance in 2016. And the idea was all about what are we looking at with life insurance because again, the title of the um, of the study is lapse-based insurance. There's one other aspect to this that is sort of a side point. Part of the reason that these policies lapse is simply that people forget to pay premiums. One of the difficulties with universal life is that you must pay premiums. It's very difficult to find a 10 pay or a 20 pay where you simply are required to pay premiums for a specific period of time. Sorry to interrupt, but just for our audience, whole life insurance gives us that limited pay option. But what you're saying here with universal life is you're locked in for life. Really, someone's going to have to pay that premium. Yeah. And that brings up an evil phrase, but a very positive attribute to it. Whole life insurance is front loaded. That is, for example, with a 10-year period of premiums, you can envision easily somebody buys a whole life policy and they're told they have to pay premiums to age 100. But if you then take that policy and jam all those premiums up front to the first 10 years with interest and growth and all the rest, the idea is after 10 years, do I have to pay premiums? No, you don't. In fact, you're not even allowed to. You're watching the policy continue for the rest of your life with guarantees to continue. It's front loaded. Now, some people look at that as, well, I don't want to pay all the fees up front. I don't want to pay all the cost up front. I don't want to put all my money in there. On the other hand, universal life is not front-loaded. It's back-loaded. Great. So when you're 87 years old and you get that letter that says, I need $437,000 to support your $500,000 policy, that's better. Yikes. It's, yeah. yeah. The idea of having to pay premiums for that period of time to age 100 or age 120 or whatever, and then not seeing any benefit from those payments because the insurance company has eaten up whatever your earnings are on the other side of the uh, equation. That doesn't sound positive to me. If, in fact, it actually damages dramatically the idea of using these for retirement or even for a legacy. That's a great place to stop this episode. Before I do that, tell everyone how they can find you and the best way they could reach out to you. My website is 82financial.com, 82financial.com. You can reach me through there. There is, of course, a way to uh, contact me. There's also uh, Air Atlas. Let's point that out because that plays into the idea of forgetting to pay premiums on your universal life policy. H-E-I-R, like beneficiary, atlas.com. We can play there as well. And that's worth a read for people that are nervous about uh, making sure their family 
has everything they need. Fantastic resources. And Les, uh, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Thank you again, Les, for coming on the show today. Again, I want to encourage everyone to stick around for next week's episode where we talk further about the myth of Index Universal Life Insurance illustrations, or that would be your spreadsheets that you might be given by the insurance agent, and how insurance agents, I think, mislead some of the data that they're sharing with people who who are considering buying the Universal Life products. We'll also talk in next week's episode about the recent regulations that were passed down, AG49A and B, and what it has to say about universal life promises versus realities. As for today's episode, a key takeaway for me was remembering that not all that glitters is gold. Just because you may not lose money due to a market downturn, quote, quote, does not mean you might not lose money. In fact, with 90% of universal life contracts not paying out a death benefit, it sounds like the only one making money with the IUL is the insurance company who sold it to you. If you knew of an airline that averaged 9 out of 10 airplanes lifted off, did not land successfully on the tarmac, or did not make it to their destination, how confident would you feel in that airline and its ability to help you reach your goals safely? So that's a key takeaway is to use thoughtful, rational processes when considering a financial tool. Start by listing out your goals, your risk tolerance. Decide whether or not this is another tulip bulb mania. This will help you get a clear idea of what you want rather than what someone else is telling you that you should want. Also, ask yourself what the source or quality is of the information that you're digging into. What obligation does that source or person delivering your information to you what, what sort of obligation do they have to you? For example, media, financial pundits, info radio tainers, uh, financial infotainers, and more have no obligation to your personal success. In fact, even this podcast, I have no particular obligation to you necessarily giving you personalized advice because I can't know who all is listening to this episode today. What's the answer to this problem? Well, Check the credibility and accuracy of the people speaking on the radio shows or these podcasts, and then reach out to a professional like myself or less, and let's go over your personalized financial situation to see if this or any other tool makes good sense to you and your circumstances. Don't fall for the tulip bulbs or whatever comes next. Finally, ask yourself if you're being influenced by emotions or bias. Be aware of how you're feeling and what your cognitive bias might be in making a reasonable decision. Are you playing into FOMO, fear of missing out, or confirmation bias, or anchoring? If so, look for objective feedback, get advice from people who have your best interest at heart. Okay, guys, remember our summit is coming up September 6th and 7th, 2023. It will be full of great speakers, including Les Hemmel. So we want to encourage you to make it to hear more from Les and many other great speakers who will be attending. You do not want to miss this incredible event happening virtually. So what are you waiting for? Go to our site now and sign up today. It's notyouraveragefinancialsummit.com. That's notyouraveragefinancialsummit.com. Thank you for joining me, Les, and everyone for this week's episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think and live differently with your money, your economy, and your future. 
This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join a financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.